You're listening to the Footprints of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ash Gartner. A self-confessed serial career changer, today's guest has done it all. Sally Cap has worked as a solicitor, a small business founder and as Agent General for Victoria in the UK, Europe and Israel before becoming the 104th Lord Mayor of Melbourne. She's also a trailblazer. She was the first woman to be directly elected to the position. Lord Mayor Sally Cap, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Ash. You became Lord Mayor during somewhat of a tumultuous time for council. What has the last three years been like for you? Well, I think we could safely say that that sense of uh, tumultuous uh, circumstances hasn't really left uh, me during this three years. It was very much a time of change in 2018 uh, when I put my hand up to become Lord Mayor. I feel very passionate as a Melbourneian and I was really concerned to see this sort of disrespect uh, that was being shown to Town Hall and uh, felt really impassioned to get involved and to be part of making change. There are so many times in your life when you see things happening around you and you feel okay not to get involved and then there are those moments in your life when you feel actually I need to not just comment on what's happening about around me but actually get involved in the solutions. And uh, since that time, we've had to do a lot of internal culture change to respond to the situations. We've then had a terrorist attack in the city, resulting in deaths. We've had uh, some pretty horrendous murders of young women. And we've also responded to the bushfires as a capital city. And then, of course, the pandemic. I'm not sure what's left, Ash, uh, but it's been an incredible time for me to learn more about the city and how local government works and for me to learn more about myself as a leader and a team member. And it's been the ups and downs, but it's been very rewarding in many ways as well. I mean, the list you just mentioned, it really has been three years of ups and downs. How have you maintained that resilience and strength as a leader during that time? It's a good question and sometimes I ask myself, Ash, uh, but firstly, I, I feel really lucky because I'm a naturally positive, optimistic person. I'm not just a glass half full, I'm a glass all the way full person and I feel lucky to have natural levels of positive energy. Of course, that comes a lot from the people around me, from my family and my team members. I also get a lot of energy from people. So being a people person, I'm actually on the introvert sort of side of the personality uh, spectrum, which surprises even me sometimes. Uh, but I'm, I'm also lucky to feel a lot of joy and inspiration from what other people do and achieve. And it's one of the core elements of what's really kept me going through this very stressful, extreme situation of the pandemic period has been every day I've been able to speak to people doing the most incredibly inspiring, meaningful, compassionate, kind, ingenious things. And those stories have really kept me going. I get also the ability every day to feel like I can make a difference. And I take a lot of a sense of uh, progression, if you like, even from the tiniest little steps forward in the current environment. 
And the last thing I'd say is I have a daily mantra, which really keeps me focused on the things I can do. And it goes like this. It's an old saying from a guy named Edward Hale. I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And I will not let what I cannot do interfere with what I can do. So daily when all of us face those barriers, whether it's somebody or something that seems to uh, stop or impede something I want to do, I really pirouette to those things I can do and I keep myself going by focusing on the things I can do and that's also very energising. On that topic of COVID, you've led Melbourne and really been a strong voice for Melbourne during COVID. We recently took the title as the city that spent the most time in lockdown. Certainly, it would be a taxing time to be a leader in Melbourne. Can you talk me through your experience in that area? Well, look, it's not a record that we would seek uh, nor that we can celebrate, but it does also speak to the incredible sense of solidarity and the unity on the whole, that Victorians have really shown during this time. I'm the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, which is our capital city in Victoria, but at the end of the day, I'm in local government. And what's been really important during this time of the pandemic is that each level of government had to very quickly work out what are the areas that we're responsible for and where we can actually have the most impact. So this time of pandemic, when people often say there's no rule book, there are still some sort of key pillars on leadership and teamwork and responding to need in the community, planning for the future, those things that we've really gone back to basics. And our first effort was around what do we need to keep doing even during a time of crisis? We've got to keep collecting the rubbish. We've got to make sure the roads are open and don't have too many potholes. And I don't want to trivialise it, but because it's important, we still have to deliver child and maternal health services. Um, we, we deliver services to people who are vulnerable, who are homeless, who are isolated. And there are certain elements of what we do that have to be maintained every day. So our focus really went to those areas here at the City of Melbourne. And what we also realised pretty quickly is that as some areas of what we do, like libraries and rec services, had to close, other areas needed more resources. So as a team, we've had to be more flexible and adaptive than ever before as well. So some people that had been in our recreation centres are now in our business concierge team, checking in with small business owners, finding out how they're going, what do they need, how can we help them? So I think that sense of flexibility has also been important. And the other thing I'd say is that governments are notoriously risk averse. And so we tend to be the computer says no. I hate saying that. Uh, but, you know, governments have to think about all the risks involved and, and be very considerate and sensitive to lots of regulations through to the needs of community. But during this time of COVID, we've taken more risks than ever before. And it's really been in an environment where the communities had a high tolerance for us doing things where we might not know all the answers, we might not know if it's going to work or not, but we should have a try because now is the time for actually exploring, experimenting and trying new things. And I think it's been really well received on the whole and I hope that it's part of a big DNA change, at least at local government level. 
Would you say COVID is the biggest challenge you've faced as a leader? Definitely, because it's called on every aspect of my role and myself as a leader. It's been all of the things that we've needed to do internally to make sure we can take care of our staff and keep them employed, to make sure we can deliver on our core responsibilities too. This year we've got a record budget to make sure that we've been prudent in our financial management but we're investing for the future and creating economic stimulus. All of those elements of what it's meant internally as the Lord Mayor but the external focus has been on steroids, if you like. The need to engage with our community has been higher than ever before. My interaction with mayors from around the world has been extraordinary as we share and learn from each other. The way that we've worked with the two other levels of government has been extraordinary. I know that people see the fighting from time to time, particularly state and federal, but the three levels of government have been more coordinated and cooperative than ever before. So from speaking to, and I've just been out on Swanston Street talking to some people today, finding out how they're going through to meetings with the Premier or the Prime Minister, it's individual conversations to the big conversations we've had to amplify. It's really been quite extraordinary. And I've got to say, I still feel exhausted at the end of every day. What makes you so passionate about your field of work? Well, I didn't actually ever think I was going to get involved in becoming an elected representative, even at local government. In fact, I realise now I only knew a tiny bit of what local government does and I've become a real champion for the sector since I've got involved, of course. I've been in the private sector most of my life. I had one government role. I was a a graduate uh, within the Trade Practices Commission feels like hundreds of years ago. And then I was the agent general for Victoria based in London doing trade and investment work. But mostly I've been in the private sector and I hadn't considered an elected representative role. It's taught me so much and I really have become passionate about the need for more people to get involved in championing community in being able to debate and discuss important issues and getting more connected to what's happening in our, could be our neighbourhood, could be the city, the state, the nation. It's just so important that we become more active and it could take all sorts of forms. You don't have to put your hand up to become an elected representative, but I do think that we're seeing that there's more need to get involved in important debates because we're facing some really big issues in our world and we need everyone to pile in so that we can get it as right as possible. I'm one of those people that loves fierce conversations. I love it when somebody says, I don't agree with you. And I'm really into those sort of constructive discussions still, but really fierce in the sense that it forces all of us to really push against boundaries to test ideas, to push each other to see if we can come up with something better. And it's really that challenge to improve approach that we need more people to get involved in because I think particularly with social media, it's easy to sit on the sidelines, to throw pot shots, to become an observer of things. And we really need more people to participate and engage and get involved and help with the solutions. 
And I think um, COVID's actually been pretty good for activating people to get more involved. In your role, you're a lot closer to community members, business leaders and stakeholders, but it also means you're a lot closer to criticism as well as feedback, if you've mentioned. That takes a lot of resilience. Where does that resilience come from? It's probably one of my biggest reflections about coming into leadership roles is how many people criticise and it can be very hurtful. It does cause me to to self-doubt. It does make me question my decisions or things I've said over and over again. And then I think, oh my gosh, what a waste uh, so much of that effort and energy and emotion is. And I really try to put it in perspective. It is good though to just reality check, um, to listen and to receive feedback. I'm really open to that when it's about the issue, when it's relevant, when it's meant in a constructive way. As I mentioned, you know, I do like those fierce conversations. When it's personal, hurtful, unnecessary, vicious, uh, those things, as I said, do lead to, to negativity. One of the things that I've really learnt through this experience, given that my leadership has been more public than ever before, is that I check in with myself and my team and people that I really respect a lot and I I effectively check in to make sure that I'm still doing the things that I think are the right thing to do, not the popular thing to do, not the easy thing to do, but the right thing to do. And it's often when I step in or we step in as an organisation into debates and issues where we decide to take a stance where we think it's the right thing to do, that we and I attract the most criticism. So I do have to just go back in and keep checking. You know, do we think that's the right thing to do? Could we improve it? Could we tweak it? Yes, but if it's the right thing to do, then I am going to hang on to that and I'm going to pursue it right to the end. doesn't matter what people say, doesn't matter what they throw at me, I'm like a dog at a bone, I will keep going because it's the right thing to do. And in some ways, the criticism fuels my determination to keep going because they represent the alternative. And to me, when I see it in stark contrast to the right thing to do, it's it's highly motivating. When you were elected Lord Mayor, did you have an idea of the kind of leader you wanted to be? Yes, I did. Uh, And I think the resolve around that really came through the campaigning because I'd never been through campaigning before and it's ruthless and confronting. And it really confirmed for me um, some very basic things that in some ways I'd been building over my career in terms of my style as a leader, but as I said, it really cemented it. One of those things is to be yourself. I know that it's oversaid in terms of being authentic, but literally today I had a lady approach me on the street who said, you are so approachable and I feel I can can connect with you and what you say resonates with me and you seem so natural. And the power of that is it means it's okay for me to be myself as well. It's like a permission 
every time I'm authentic, I'm giving permission for other people to be the same way. And it's one of the most powerful things and gifts that we can give each other is the permission to be ourselves. And it happened to me very much in the campaign when I was confronted over and over again with the opportunity, if you like, to change my view on things or to compromise my view or my stance on the basis that it might win me more votes or it may lead to somebody else endorsing me or I might get more airplay. Again, it might be the popular thing. And I really had to make some big grown-up decisions at those points and I kept going on the basis that it was what was what I thought was right, what was true to me, what I could stand up for, what I thought uh, represented my values and beliefs. And every time I did that, even though I got some knocks back, I felt like I was still moving 10 steps forward and it was absolutely key to me to keep going in that regard. So some of the big issues in that campaign were things like, should we have an Apple store in Fed Square? It seems so long ago. And most people wanted me to say no, but I said yes. And I was often the only one in the debates that did that. And I had to justify why I felt that way. And rather than losing votes, I often ended up gaining votes. I've had people that stood up in Meet the Candidate nights that said, it doesn't matter what you say tonight, we're never going to vote for you because we suspect that, you know, you represent the big end of town and you don't value community and I'd have to really stand up and say why I thought I'd be a good representative for members of the community and not just business given that that was my background and uh, and I just was very persistent in in putting myself forward myself all the time in those conversations and ultimately I was able to win through so that's a long answer to number one which is be authentic number two is do not make assumptions or judge people without being curious and asking questions and making investigations and giving people the benefit of the doubt. When I stood up, that, that example I just gave is a, is a good one, people made assumptions about me and I've got to say it was really uncomfortable but it made me realise I do that every day. I do that of other politicians at other levels of government when I'm voting. It's a shortcut for us to rely on judgments and assumptions. And sometimes that works for shortcuts in the day. But a lot of the time when you're dealing with people and big issues, you cannot make assumptions. We have a responsibility to be curious, as I said, ask questions and investigate. And I do that so much more than I ever did before. And it's been a revelation to me in dealing with members of the community through to dealing with business leaders and political leaders is to just take the time to ask a few more questions so that I can make my own opinion and it's based on my own investigation rather than making assumptions. And it's opened so many doors and friendships and relationships and it's given me much better judgment in my decision making. And they're two key things that have really amplified and and filled me with a sense of resolve as a result of this role. Do you have mentors you've gone to along the way throughout your journey? Yes, and mostly they've been what I would call informal rather than formal mentoring programs. And I learned early on in my career, I've had three roles for my career. One is to 
mitigate yourself as a risk if you want to take risks. Two is tell people what you want. And three is create a network of supporters, not just a network and not a support network, but a network of supporters, people who champion you when you're not in the room. And it's been important for me, particularly in the telling people what you want, you have to find a way of doing that that suits your style. And my best way of doing that is to ask people for help and advice. It's been wonderful. I learnt it sort of the hard way a long time ago when I started as a lawyer. And it's stayed with me ever since is to reach out and ask people. And some people won't have the time or they can't help you at that point. But I am have always been... I shouldn't say surprised, but delighted really at the generosity that people have when you genuinely want to ask them questions, ask for advice and guidance. And my promise is that I'm very generous as well when people ask me, uh, because I think it could lead to a longer term relationship or it might be a moment in time, but they're gifts that we can give each other. And I think it's a really important way that people can get help get alignment, be supported and achieve their dreams. It's been absolutely true for me. Who have been some of your mentors? Well, um, I know I always have to say family have been the most incredible support and providers of good reality checks when I need them too. You know, the figurative slap across the face to say, wake up and get on with things. So my parents my partner, even my children are grown up now. They're pretty good for giving me reality checks. But I know that they also provide that um, unconditional support and love when I really need it. And let's face it, we all make mistakes and it's just nice to know there's somebody there that's going to love you no matter what. That gives me a lot of confidence. One of my aunts was a federal member of parliament, believe it or not, an absolute game changer, Ros Kelly. And I really wasn't aware of it at the time, but she's been such an incredible role model for me and continues to be. She's my best friend, really, which is fantastic. My uncle ran a big bank, Westpac Bank in Melbourne, David Morgan. So I've had these lovely family members who are role models, who I've been able to get it almost by, um, what's it called, symbiosis, organically, and I've been really lucky. And then what I do is... I really am attracted to people where I like what they do, but I like how they go about it. So I'm one of those pests that does approach people, contact people, and I'll say, I really love the way you go about this, or I like your style or how you managed that. It's much more personal than sort of career achievements. And it gives people an insight into what you're looking for from them. And they've included business leaders that I've worked with or may have approached from afar, John McFarlane, Elizabeth Proust, Carol Schwartz, people who I've known now for four decades and have kept in touch with. And I think that's the other thing about mentors and relationships is that it, it's an effort on both sides. So you can't go into it expecting everything to come your way. You've got to give something as well. And in my mentoring relationships now where I'm the mentor, I know that the more I put into it, the more I'll get out of it because my mentees come back to me with lots of fabulous insights as well. And uh, it's a give-give relationship. And if it does that, it can be enduring because there's something in it for both parties. If you only take, then uh, those relationships tend to be very short-lived. 
Yeah, absolutely. What to you makes a good leader? Yeah, it's a really good question uh, because there are so many elements to leadership and people will have bits of these to different extents at what makes good leaders different as well because you need different skill sets and judgment and experience at different times. But there are some core things for me. One is respect. I think it's absolutely key that you have respect for other people to be a good leader because leaders are about building teams and respecting the value that everybody brings to those teams. Uh, it's about respecting the individual. It's respect brings itself to a humanity. And leaders need to be people that can connect and they can bring people along with them. And you need humanity for that. You need to show compassion at the right time and you need to show strength at the right time. And I think that respect, humanity, compassion really all go together. I think you've got to be a very active listener. And I've learnt more of this over the years. The value in listening well is enormous. You can accelerate things, you can identify issues more easily, you can go to solutions, effective solutions more quickly, you can build relationships. And in many ways, I did learn this from my parents. It's something I've passed on to my kids as well. And it starts in school, you know, the, the ability to actively listen, to be present and to make sure that you're gleaning everything you can from that conversation and that session or that workshop or that class has been absolutely cornerstone to me through my career. And now that I'm more involved in community, Again, I feel so lucky to have the energy and the skill set and the focus to actively listen because it's uh, key to identifying issues, solutions and moving forward. Um, and it's very connected, of course, to the respect element as well. So I think leaders have to have those elements. I come across so many people these days where they still want to know what degrees I got or have I done any further study or have I been involved in those things? And I'm a really big supporter of education because education builds core skills and experience. It brings confidence and it helps with judgment, but it's only once you start applying those learnings that you really start to move forward in your leadership and your career journey. And I think that's where the biggest risks are. And it's true when I was a young lawyer, for example, there was a lot I learned at law school and a lot I could learn in the regulations, but the risk was in applying it to client situations or to life or, or to issues that spring up out of nowhere or to things that you do every day. It's the risk taking in the applying and the judgment that you learn around uh, those elements that really distinguish you, I think, in your career and as a leader. And so I do encourage people to really jump in and have a go because that's the best learning of all. Are you someone that believes in a routine or a particular structure to get the most out of your day? Well, here goes. I love spontaneity, serendipity and change. But to give me the headspace and the time for those activities, I'm actually very organised. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, I think you've got to have the foundation of that to give you the confidence that certain things will be happening and are covered and sorted. 
once I've got those things done, I am all for this. You know, I'll walk home a different way every day. I might bump into somebody different. I will push myself into crowds, even though I'm actually quite a shy person. It's hard to believe, but but because I don't know what's going to happen. And I love spontaneity of saying, well, we said we were going to go here, but actually let's go and do that instead. It looks more interesting. But I only have capacity for those things in my day if I've got everything else sorted. So the more organised you are, the more receptive you are to that spontaneity? Yes, receptive and the more those things are possible. Our vision at the City of Melbourne for the next four years is to be a city of possibilities. We want people to feel hopeful and positive about the future. And for us to deliver on that vision, our role very much is the facilitator creating the environment for people to pursue their passions and to be successful in their careers and to to feel that they can really fulfil their dreams here in Melbourne after such a tough time is important. There's a real corollary in that sense of possibility comes from actually putting yourself in the right environment for those possibilities to materialise. And for me, that's a big responsibility I have and we have as an organisation is to provide that platform from which people can leap forward. And uh, and it only comes actually from that sense of good management and organisation and really laying the groundwork for those leaps. So what about work-life balance? How do you strike that balance when things are just so crazy at the moment? You've got to do, you've got to be up for the juggle and you've got to be kind to yourself at times when you're feeling guilty and you've got to really push yourself hard to get the most out of out of each experience or meeting or opportunity. And I say that because I know that at various times in my career I've had to reprioritise. So I've always wanted everything, but at different times that everything has different priorities. So when my children were younger, they had more of a priority because they needed more of my time. As they got older, I could re-swap my priorities and focus on other things like career or community involvement. Uh, And it's really about the juggle of the priorities. You can have everything, they're just in different proportions at different times of your life. As soon as I start feeling guilty about something, I think I've got to make a change to those priorities or to that role or to that situation. I really use my guilty list and those guilty feelings, that gut instinct, and I act on it because the longer that you leave it, the more, you know, the anxiety can build up. And it could happen in a moment. I remember being in a meeting when I was a an exec at um, at ANZ Bank and I was involved in a meeting with people far more senior than me and I was really pleased to be in that meeting but it was running over and I was missing a commitment uh, for my children and I literally had perspiration running down my face. I'll never forget it because it was such a physical reaction to the stress of not wanting to miss out on the meeting, not wanting to be judged by my all-male colleagues in that situation, but knowing that my priority at 5pm was to be somewhere else. And so in that moment, I had to 
to act. And I said, look, I'm sorry, but this meeting was supposed to finish at 4.30. It's already at 5. I've got commitments that are important named Nicholas and William and uh, I need to leave. And they all looked and said, oh, gosh, yeah, I'm late for this meeting or I was supposed to be somewhere else. So I think, you know, you've got to really own that. It's your priorities, it's your life, it's your happiness, it's your success. You have a responsibility to own it. I don't doubt how challenging it is in some situations to do that, but ultimately it's our, the decisions that we're making for ourselves. So we've really got to own it, prioritise and enjoy the juggle. What key piece of advice would you give to someone setting out on a similar journey to you? The key bit of advice that, you know, we mostly say is you've got to take risks. You know, really, when I go and speak to kids, I talk about, you know, you can be in a straitjacket and really look at life as a vertical or one way forward, whereas for me it's been like a star jump of wanting to really test all of my own boundaries, other people's boundaries, what's possible. Um, I've zigzagged through my career. Uh, I've, I've made decisions other people have looked and said, oh, gosh, why did you do that? Um, but they're my, my decisions. But the biggest thing I've learned from doing those things is to really mitigate myself as a risk. If I want to take risks, that's one thing, but how do I help the other people involved in that decision take a risk on me. And I think when I switched around my perspectives in that way, it really helped me mitigate myself as a risk to others. If you want to take risks, you've got to turn the perspective around to understand how the people taking a risk on you see it. And you've got a role to play in mitigating that risk you know, point out more things on your CV or get other people to talk about why you're deserving of that opportunity or put people around you to mitigate why you might be a risk or ask for further development so that you're mitigating the, the rough parts of, of you as you as you strive forward, put a more compelling case forward. It's all sorts of things. But I really think it's our responsibility, our personal responsibility to do that. Um, it's a long-winded answer to encouraging people to take risks, but do it with an extra perspective to give yourself the best chance of success. Thank you for listening to the Footprints of Leadership podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts and follow on Spotify to be notified of our next episode. You can find more on our socials at Footprints Podcast. This podcast was brought to you by Giraffe Consulting. If your business is ready for a new perspective, visit giraffeconsulting.com.au.